Hi, this is Steve Nellick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 78, Life in Space. Let there be no doubt about it. There is life in space. After all, we live on a planet that's in space. Whether there's any other life out there is another question or questions. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Does life arise from extremophiles or do extremophiles arise from life? It's often claimed that life could arise from simply anywhere since we have extremophiles that can survive in nuclear reactors, on the external parts of orbital spacecraft and in various highly saline, hot, caustic or otherwise downright inhospitable environments. While true, it's unclear whether such extremophiles arose within those unfriendly environments or whether life on Earth might have begun in one of Charles Darwin's warm little ponds from where life then expanded its reach into more hostile environments. That expansion into new environments was mostly driven by competition for resources. After all, today, the only things that can live in warm little ponds are highly efficient biological powerhouses that can outdo the competition. At least until the competition comes up with something new. Long ago, some primitive organisms were pushed out of the ponds and were left to try and eke out a living in the colder and harsher world outside. First attempts may have failed, but the reproducing organisms within the warm little pond would have kept on pushing out new variants until some eventually managed to gain a solid foothold a few centimetres out from the pond's edge. And they were the world's first extremophiles. Of course, today there's not many evolutionary biologists that still go along with the warm little pond concept. Current favoured theories assume that life arose in the oceans and perhaps around hydrothermal vents. Another theory is that life arose on land, or at least under land, indeed perhaps a kilometre under, where the environment is warm and still a tiny bit wet. In either scenario, those first life forms were protected from surface radiation, which would have been pretty fierce in the absence of an ozone layer. It's only when photosynthetic life took off and began adding oxygen to the atmosphere that living on the surface became possible. Before that, what you needed was a stable, warm and bio-friendly environment within which some primitive life forms had time to develop the capacity to both live and reproduce and also survive unanticipated changes in their environment. It's only when you have those basics sorted out that you can start widening your range into new territories. So, that is the point we're trying to make here. Mother Earth supported the establishment of the many complex and intricate intracellular mechanisms that allow archaea, bacteria and eukaryotes to survive. The large majority of life's biochemical complexity involves enabling single cells to survive and reproduce. The subsequent steps of building multicellular bodies really isn't as difficult 
although keeping those bodies intact and functioning is a whole different kind of challenge. Humans and mammals generally have solved that problem by turning ourselves into mobile warm little ponds. But consider the humble tardigrade, which astounds us by going into a metabolic stasis, allowing it to survive for quite long periods in the harsh vacuum of space. But nonetheless, stasis is stasis. If a tardigrade is to grow and to reproduce, it needs to return to its native environment, the clump of wet moss, which is, to all intents and purposes, a warm little pond. So the idea that because extremophiles can survive in extreme environments, that therefore means life can just evolve anywhere, does not seem like a reasonable conclusion. Earth's extremophiles mostly live on the edge of an envelope which surrounds the warm, rich, energetic and highly biofriendly planet Earth. The extremophiles who have got farthest away from Earth so far and still remained active, even if they didn't actually reproduce, are of course the humans. We took a whole bunch of E. coli and our other gut flora along with us, as well as a few Demodex mites on our skin... But the effort and determination to achieve the goal was totally us. So, extremophiles? Meh. We are the real extremophiles. Indeed, our next evolutionary step, when we build self-replicating robots, will be the real extremophiles, who will go out and conquer the universe, but hopefully let us hang on, huddled around our warm little pond back home. This is the middle bit. Our data set of one suggests that you need a lot of time and relative stability to produce an ecosystem capable of producing a species that's capable of space travel and space communications. And when we say relative stability, let's remember our planet has been snowball Earth more than once, has hosted supervolcano eruptions, and of course meteor impacts. But on the bright side, when you do work out how to bang the rocks together, not only can you fly in space, but you can take your ecosystem with you. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Will we ever have pets in space? So firstly, while having a pet in space might be a good thing for the owner, it's also important to consider whether it's going to be good for the pet. Our moral history in this area isn't great. Where we sent Laika into space aboard Sputnik 2, with no possibility of returning her to Earth, and she ended up dying from overheating before the plan to feed her suicide pills could be enacted. Also, just like human beings, the health of most animals will deteriorate after long periods in microgravity with respect to muscle loss, bone density loss and cardiovascular changes. The mental health of animals would also be an issue, where they might eventually adapt to microgravity, but are likely to freak out in the first instance. Of course, being us, we've done lots of experiments with animals on planes that fly on parabolic trajectories to create a microgravity environment. We found that cats freaked out, because they keep trying to orientate themselves to land on their feet, pigeons were unable to fly. I mean, they floated around, aimlessly flapping their wings, 
but not really flying. Apparently, they need gravity to provide them with up-down orientation so they can fly in a straight line. And we've even done snakes on a plane, where the snakes seem to lose their sense of physical self and start attacking their own body as though it's an enemy snake. Later on in the space station era, we also found that butterflies couldn't fly and some hatched baby birds had to be put down because they couldn't figure out how to eat. Probably because they were born with the expectation that bird seed should stay on the ground. So, all in all, life in microgravity would probably not be a great experience for either a pet or its owner. Fish might work as a zero-g pet, although oxygenating and cleaning their sealed tank requires some clever engineering And even fish can lose some bone density, since water pressure won't increase with depth. But as soon as you put gravity back into the picture, the outlook for pits in space is much better. Assuming we do eventually establish permanent bases on the Moon or Mars, pets do seem a likely addition once life within such bases settles into a routine. And you could also bring pets aboard a colony ship that uses rotation to create artificial gravity. Nonetheless, adjusting to life on a colony ship might not be a walk in the park for dogs, who, you know, enjoy a walk in the park, but it might be okay for cats, who'll just sleep most of the day and go prowling in the night, hunting for the mice that will inevitably find their way aboard via a food shipment or something. And of course, with gravity, fish would be absolutely fine, and they wouldn't need a special tank, and rabbits, guinea pigs, and even snakes would probably be okay too. Of course, all this awaits future technologies and bulk transport carriers that provide enough economies of scale to allow us to do somewhat frivolous things like take pets with us. We may explore some cost-saving options such as launching eggs and sperm, but at least for mammals, having a parent is almost a necessity at least in the first few weeks. So transporting eggs and sperm may be more about maintaining genetic diversity in an off-world breeding population rather than growing anything from scratch. And maybe future technologies will include robo-pets. It is mostly the case that we like dogs and cats because we bred them to be likeable. We may get a closer match to what's likeable if we do build something from scratch with that objective in mind. Given what we aim for through breeding cats and dogs, the ideal robo-pet is probably something which appeals to our general liking for cuteness and companionship, and an ideal robo-pet, as well as having sufficient predictive algorithms to know precisely when we want interaction with it and when we don't, would also know what type of interaction we might want when we want it. In the face of that, there may still be a few diehards who still favour the old-fashioned bread-for-purpose companion animal, but it's not clear who would have the moral high ground there. Is it better to have a relationship with a biological entity that's been genetically manipulated to unconditionally like you, or is it better just to build yourself a plastic pal who's fun to be with? This is the end bit. So... There you go. We're not alone, and nor will we explore the universe alone. 
assuming we actually decide to do that ourselves, rather than delegating it to the robots. Or of course there's the third option, where we undergo a generational techno-evolutionary process to become the robots, leaving our inefficient fleshy selves behind, which would save a lot of headaches with life support systems. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you're ready to take that first step into robothood, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll do all the nuts and bolts for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.